of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I started University of Toronto in the early 1970s, the big threat for a Christian student was Biology 101, because you were going to be confronted with the teaching of evolution. The humanities were relatively safe. I mean, how much trouble can you get into reading Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, right? And what can, what can you do wrong with that? But all the times have changed. Now it is the humanities that is a danger field for Christians, whether it's, it's English, English literature or history or any kind of social studies, philosophy. There is a growing consensus in the academic world and throughout culture as a whole that says there is no truth. And anybody who says this is the truth, it's a hoax, it's a lie, because ultimately truth is, is whatever you want it to be, and it's flexible, it's, it can change. You can die for it one day and give it up the next day. And that's why if you read something like Charles Dickens, you know, whether it's David Copperfield or Bleak House or Great Expectations, people say we're not interested in Dickens' morals and values about marriage, about poverty and so on. We'll make of it whatever we want. And meanwhile, as you know full well, uh, statutes, statues of historical people are being torn down, names taken off buildings, uh, gender identity and sexuality it's, it is in a state of flux. There's a reason why a conservative professor like Jordan Peterson quit his job as tenured professor at the University of Toronto. He said, I, I can't function in this world anymore. I can't teach. My students can't get jobs because I believe there is truth. I believe that there are constant things. I think that things of the past are still valid today. That man cannot function in a university any longer. Now you can imagine what, what this new woke culture, what it does to the scripture. There's no such thing as truth. You can read your Bible and read things like Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. He died, he rose again. And people say, that's simply not true. That can't happen. And it never did. But then think particularly of the pinnacle, the very height of all truth, which is the cross. The old rugged cross. Mocked by the world, very simply put, people say, I mean, how stupid can you get? guy dies on the cross, and somehow that's our Savior. That's the one who changes history and, and eternity. That, that's just dumb. And Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 1, that, that's what the world will say, that the cross is, is, is foolishness. Whereas in actual fact, it is the truth that changes the world. It spins at 180 degrees around from a collision course with hell to an eternity with God. Because at the cross, God reveals himself as the one who loves sinners, who gives his son to die for sinners, that we may be children of God and heirs of life everlasting. It is that truth of the cross 
That's the answer for everything. Whether you're struggling with sin and temptation, or going through trials and tribulations, maybe health issues, or even as we reel with the rest of the world over what's happening in the Ukraine, the cross is the answer. We're going to see that this morning, why it's the answer, why we have nothing to fear, and how we have something to offer the whole world. We summarize our text in this way. The Lord God is the redeemer of worms who take refuge in him. We'll see three things. We are but worms, yet we have nothing to fear, and God always helps those who trust in him. Now, we read in the opening of our, our text, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, Jacob, Israel. It's uh, the same thing. This is, this is the church. But why does God call his church a worm? Some people say it's a term of endearment. Uh, it's a loving term. You, you know, if, if you're a young parent and you have a six-month-old child, and in your arms, squirming and ready to jump right out of your arms, you might say very affectionately, you squirmy little worm, you. You say that in love. But I doubt God's doing that here in our text. Uh, for a couple of reasons, I say that. For one thing, look how the term worm is used elsewhere in Scripture. And I think of one passage that stands out, which is Psalm 22, a psalm of David, but as everybody knows, it's Jesus Christ himself who ultimately wrote it, inspired it, and, and is the one who's talking about himself. He says there in verse 6, But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. So when Jesus Christ calls himself a worm, he's speaking about his humiliation hanging on the cross, rejected by both God and man, and thrust to the open doors of hell itself. Secondly, we also want to keep in, in mind the context here. Isaiah 41 is closely related to Isaiah 40. And our text, verse 14, is an echo of chapter 40, verse 6, which has these familiar words, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. So here in, in these two chapters, God says to his people, to the church, you are fast withering grass. You are a worm pointing to our sin and all the humiliation that goes along with that. And now here there's also a, a broader context that we have to keep in mind. When Isaiah writes verse 14 here, he's talking about events that will take place in 539 BC at the end of the Babylonian exile. But he's writing 700 BC, more than 150 years earlier. And he lived in a time of incredible abomination and evil in, in, in Judah, in Jerusalem. Just read Isaiah. You can hardly believe the evil. And one of the most outstanding ones was how the rich treated the poor. And Isaiah describes it as the rich standing on the backs of the poor and peeling the skin right off their back. 
And by the end of Isaiah, in chapter 59, Isaiah says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's not like God can't do it. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. What an incredible indictment. That means what an incredible accusation against his people, the evil that they have involved themselves in. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, you know, this the stuff that you've done, you didn't do it just to yourself. He says there, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Israel is the most blessed people on the face of the earth. The most religious people you have ever come across. They are an abomination to God. Surrounding nations say, some God you have, the way you live, you, you, you don't have much of a God. And God says to his church, you, you worm, you sinful people. Personally, I feel a little sorry for worms. who are just going about their business, tilling the earth and going through the ground. Because man is lower than that. But of course, this is like 2,700 years ago, right? 2,700 years ago that Isaiah is writing this. Things have changed, haven't they? Christ has come. The cross happened. Uh, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. There's no way that God would say this to us today, would he? Think of what Paul writes in Romans 3 when he's quoting Psalm 14. There's no one righteous not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And then Paul goes on to say, their throat is like an open grave. When God says, open your mouth, and he looks down, he sees a tomb and dead men's bones. Oh yes, God could just as easily say today, Oh, you worm, Canadian Reformed Church in St. Albert, you quickly withering grass. And that, that's a call for self-examination and humility. And how, how do we see ourselves? You know, what, what do you feel in your heart when you know you have ignored someone's plea for mercy or, or help. What's going on in your heart when, when you're irritated? Because you've got to take time out to read your Bible and to pray. Or when, when your heart harbors immoral thoughts or, or hostility and resentment against others. When there's not this quivering excitement to be holy and righteous as God is. What adjective would we use to, to describe ourselves? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, I'm a worm. And it wasn't even his sins, but it was our sins. If Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man, how do we think about ourselves? 
I can imagine that somebody or some people listening to this say, oh, here we go again. Always talking about sin and how, how bad we are. And our, our woke culture would say, exactly. You know, that Bible is just full of it. Always talking about sin. I mean, you're not a mass serial killer, are you? You're, you're not a sinner, are you? And I agree that as a minister, you can't overdo it. And if you always send people home depressed and sad and feel like they've been ground into the mud, there's something wrong with that. But how, how will we understand grace unless we understand who and what we are? How, how are we going to sing John Newton's amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How are we going to sing that? Unless you know you are a sinner saved by grace alone. It's precisely when we fully understand ourselves with our sins, our weaknesses, and our shortcomings that we're also open to the beauty, the amazing beauty of God's grace. To talk about sin is not meant to destroy us or, or walk around with, with a, a guilt-laden conscience with our face shoved into the dirt. But it's to, to weep and lift up our heads to God and know of his love and know of his grace. Because that's what God is saying here in this passage. He says, do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O Israel. I am the one who helps you. The little worm will find refuge when he turns or she turns to God for help. And as it says at the end of Isaiah 40, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now we go on to our second point, where we will see even in more depth why we have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid about. Now, in our text, God is addressing his people. He calls them Israel or Jacob. It's the church. But that's a change of audience. Because when you start Isaiah 41, God is addressing the entire world. He says in verse 1, Be silent before me, you coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Now, the, the coastlands, that, that's a reference to, to all the coastlands of the world. And the passage makes clear that God is addressing the entire world. Brothers and sisters, the world is in turmoil. I mean, Isaiah is writing uh, around 700, maybe a little bit earlier. And he's writing about things that will take place over the next almost 200 years. The world at that time was going through unspeakable violence. First of all, there was the empire of Assyria from modern-day northern Iraq and Iran. Assyria swept through the world with a brutality. Now, you can Google this if you want, and you'll find out the Assyrians are known as the most violent, the, the most cruel empire that ever ruled. 
if the Assyrians came to town, and there's passages in the Old Testament that describe this, what they would do is almost unspeakable. I mean, they would, they would literally skin people alive. They murdered babies. We won't even talk about what they did to the women. It was unbelievable violence. And they're the ones who destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel in 722, and they never came back. Then after that came the Babylonians, another empire of violence. You know, they, they came to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the people into 70 years of exile. And then came the Persians, modern-day Iran, under the leadership of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is the one who brought the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. But again, he rocked the world with violence. You know, today, we look at images and listen to what's happening in the Ukraine. And it, it shocks us. But you have to realize the world at that time lived with that kind of shock day in and day out for hundreds of years. And you can imagine that people are saying, where is God in all of this? And what God says here in this chapter, he says, I'm right there. I'm here. He says in verse 2, who has stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? What the Lord is saying is, I am the one who raises up Cyrus, king of Persia, who will liberate my people. I'm God. I'm, I'm in control. I'm running the show. Nothing happens by chance. It all happens in accordance with my plan. He says about himself in verse 4, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. He's using here his name, the great I am. Now, when, when God says, I am who I am, that's, of course, a very tender and comforting concept for his people, but it's also his way of saying, you know what? I'm, I have an existence apart from this world. I'm eternal, and I'm God. I am the great I am. So when you are faced with war or trials and tribulations or struggles of any kind, understand this. I'm in control over everything, including the events in your life, including everything that happens in the world. And you need to find your comfort and strength in me. And indeed, in, in this chapter, this, this is being offered to the whole world. But we see in verse 5 that, that the world doesn't listen to God and instead starts desperately building its idols. And Isaiah sure has a, a neat way of poking fun at, at idols in that at the end of verse 7, I'm going to use the NIV here. It says that the world nails down the island so it will not topple. So you can imagine they build this, this idol out of silver, gold, whatever, and then they got to put nails between his toes so he doesn't fall down. I mean, you're going to rely on that for, for, for all the things that, that you need? We still live in a world of idols. I mean, with what's happening in the Ukraine, people say, what's NATO doing? We need NATO. Or maybe President Joe Biden, maybe he could step in and do something. But where's the humility? Where's the self-awareness? 
That the world doesn't see that what's happening in Ukraine is a symptom of a fallen, broken world, which we broke with the fall into sin. Take Vladimir Putin. I look at him and I see a monster. But the more I look at him, who do I see? Myself. I won't do the things that Putin does, but I'm a sinner who's also inclined to hate my neighbor and hurt the people around me. I mean, what's happening right, right now in Ukraine or in our economy or, or, or whatever, it's a call to be humble and turn to the Lord and say, oh Lord, I am a worm. We all are. It's a broken world. And what we need is real security. What we need is real hope. What we need is something that we can stand on, that nothing can separate us from your love and from life everlasting. And that's why in our text, the Lord turns to his people and say, don't you be afraid. You know, don't be like this world, which is like people whistling in the dark to keep away the boogeyman. Trust in me. And the Lord is not saying what I'm offering you is geographical and political peace. The kingdom of God is not about political peace, and that won't come until Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven. What God offers us is to be liberated from the greatest enemy, which is Satan, sin, and death. You know, the, the war in Ukraine can't destroy my soul. What's going on in this world can't, can't crush me and, and throw me into the, into the, the, the fire of, of hell. When I know God and I embrace him and his promises, I ride high. I walk on mountains. I know there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are you, my brother, my sister? A constant worrier, fretting, just not sure what's going to happen with Ukraine, with Putin's finger over the, the nuclear warhead button? Has the economy got you so down that you can... You know, you just feel like keeping your head down and just try to get through the day and maybe, maybe it'll all work out in, in the long run. Then, then you're just a person who's whistling in the dark, trying to keep the boogeyman away. The beautiful thing is the Lord understands our weaknesses and our struggles. There's this constant refrain, don't be afraid, my people. I am your God. I, I'm there with you. And indeed, we'll see in our, in our last point why it is or how it is that God always helps those who trust in him. Notice how in our text, God describes himself as your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And this is the first of 13 passages in Isaiah where that word redeemer is used. So you understand that this is an important uh, word, an important concept. We know what a redeemer is in the Old Testament. Redeemer does one of two things. If a relative falls in debt, let's say you're going to lose the, the family farm, a redeemer comes and pays off those debts. And secondly, if you're murdered, he will come and avenge your blood. 
Now God says, I am your redeemer. I take, I defend you, and I also go on the offensive against all your enemies. And when he adds that he is the Holy One of Israel, that's just another way of, of God saying, if I say this, I'm going to do it. Is that true? Is God faithful? Is he that powerful? The answer to that question blows our mind away every time we, we hear it. God shows himself able and faithful by sending his own son into this world to be born of the Virgin Mary, to become one of us so that he is our redeemer. Right away, you want to keep in mind what a redeemer does. Those, those two things, pay off debt and, and crush the enemy. First of all, he pays our debt. And he does that at the cross of Golgotha, the pinnacle of all truth. When he hung there, he was despised. The words of Psalm 22 were used against him. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. How, how can a dying man who's naked and, and bleeding and screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can he be our helper? Because he was paying our debts. Because he took all our sins on himself. He was pure and holy, but when he hung there, he hung there as a murderer, as an adulterer, as, as a thief, as someone who holds grudges, as someone who's prejudiced, bearing all our sins. And he did it all the way to the point that he satisfied God's justice so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ has those debts of sin lifted off, were washed in his blood, and those sins are cast into the depths of the sea, never to be held against us again. He is our Redeemer who paid the debt of our sin, but he also crushes the enemy. And the enemy is several things. For, for one thing, he crushed death. Yes, now in Jesus Christ, when we die, death does not mean we cease to exist, but we'll meet our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. He also crushes our old sinful nature, causing us to join in his dying and rising again so that we become new men and women, boys and girls, who are able to live to the praise and the glory of God. No longer worms, but kings and priests to God. And he crushed that great enemy of all, and that is Satan. Satan didn't even see it coming. Satan thought that he had it, you know, nailed down, that, that Jesus was dying. He was the victor, not realizing that it's precisely because of his suffering and death that Jesus Christ removes his people from the stranglehold of Satan and makes them children of God. You know, in Revelation 20, this is described as a, an angel taking a chain, wrapping around Satan, throwing him in that pit so he can't deceive the nations anymore until Jesus Christ returns. So now we're living in a world that Satan does not rule entirely. Jesus Christ rules and the church is spreading, and more and more men and women 
And boys and girls are finding their chains and their bars broken off in the blood of Jesus Christ who sets us free. You know, Isaiah gives a beautiful image in verses 10 and 13. In verse 10, God says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. So there, there's an image of, of God, that great Redeemer, his righteous hand raised. Anyone going to threaten us? Almighty God, with his raised righteous hand, will defend us. And with his other hand, he takes us by our right hand and he leads us. It's like, like Psalm 23, the good shepherd, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid. For you are with me. God leads me. God holds me with his hand through all the suffering and trials and tribulations of this world. Indeed, in the verses after our text, God informs us, is the world hard on you right now? One day you will judge. You will rule. You will shatter the nations. You will shatter Satan and his kingdom of darkness. We see, brothers and sisters, that it is the cross of Jesus Christ that is the pinnacle of all truth. It changes the course of history 180 degrees. It changes our lives so that even when we face trials and tribulations, maybe opposition from the world, we know that God is with us. He holds on to us. We cast our anxieties and burdens on him and he makes them light. And this, brothers and sisters, should also help us as a, in our vision of, of the world around us and how we represent ourselves to the world. From what I'm gathering in the news, our, our world, whether it's here in Canada or wherever, is thoroughly shaken by events that have taken place, war in Ukraine, restrictions of COVID, economies seem to, to be way out of sync. How beautiful it is as a Christian to our neighbor and to the people around us. This is Christians all over the world. That we show we're not afraid. Man, I'm not afraid. Because I have God. I have the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ that, that makes me an heir of life everlasting. I have an amazing God. And the world has to see that and hear that from us. Yes, there will be trials and tribulations. There will be wars and so on until the day that Jesus Christ returns. But we know that when God is with us, it is well. It is well with our soul. In closing, brothers and sisters, I'd like to make uh, one remark. This, this can all, you know, be taken by us that we say, yep, yeah, that's, that's the truth. Yeah, we understand that's good biblical theology. But this has to be alive, and it has to be alive in your home. Dad and mom, with your children, with your grandchildren, if they see you afraid, riddled with doubt, whether it's Ukraine, with economy, health issues, if they see that you are down and depressed and without hope, then your children, maybe without actually saying it, they're going to, you know, have the attitude, I mean, what kind of God do we have? Who is this God? 
but he leaves you trembling in fear and doubt with no hope, no courage, no standing up tall and strong. It starts in our homes. Dad and mom, grandparents, church community. Let's be strong. Let's know what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's a witness to our children, to our church community, and to the whole world. That when you know your God, and you walk with your God, it is well. It is well with our soul. Amen.